Thank you, Tia and Dora. Hello, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I am uh, the pastor here at Zhao MKE Church. I want to say hello after uh, what feels like forever long absence. Um, as some of you know, I got married a few weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, I liked it. Um, and so, uh, so I missed the last worship um, with you, along with my partner, Cameron, our worship pastor. Um, and so I know we are both really, really glad to be back with you this week. Um, we're in the midst of a series called Do You. And this, this attempt to, to do you, to be real, is one that we're all, we're all in together. It's a lifelong process. But we wanted to set aside some weeks this fall say, let's intentionally go in together. What does it mean to be fully alive, to do us? And one of the things that I often come back to um, when I'm in this question of like how to be fully myself, how to be the person God created me to be, uh, is actually the ways that I miss opportunities. And so today our conversation about showing up is about bringing intention and not missing those opportunities. It made me think of one of my favorite books as a child. Have any of you ever read The Phantom Tollbooth? All right, a couple people, a couple deep nerds. Um, I loved it. It was one of my favorite books as a kid. Um, and so I'd like to read you uh, an excerpt. This is actually from the first page of the first chapter. There once was a boy named Milo who didn't know what to do with himself. Not just sometimes, but always. When he was in school, he longed to be out. And when he was out, he longed to be in. On the way, he thought about coming home. And coming home, he thought about going. Wherever he was, he wished he was somewhere else. And when he got there, he wondered why he'd bothered. Nothing really interested him, least of all the things that should have. It seems to me that almost everything is a waste of time, he remarked one day as he walked dejectedly home from school. I can't see the point in learning to solve useless problems or subtracting turnips from turnips or knowing where Ethiopia is or how to spell February. And since no one bothered to explain otherwise, he regarded the process of seeking knowledge as the greatest waste of time of all. As he and his unhappy thoughts hurried along, for while he was never anxious to be where he was going, he liked to get there as quickly as possible. It seemed a great wonder that the world, which was so large, could sometimes feel so small and empty. And worst of all, he continued sadly, there's nothing for me to do, nowhere I'd care to go, and hardly anything worth seeing. He punctuated this last thought with such a deep sigh that a house sparrow singing nearby stopped and rushed home to be with his family. Without stopping or looking up, Milo dashed past the buildings and busy shops that lined the street and in a few minutes reached home, dashed through the lobby, hopped onto the elevator, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and off again, opened the apartment door, rushed into his room, flopped dejectedly into a chair and grumbled softly, another long afternoon. I love the Phantom Tollbooth. And as a child, what I connected with most was what came next, this adventure that Milo goes on, this process of encountering the world around him and building relationships and connections, seeing the joy and delight and wonder and majesty of everything in the world. 
When I was a kid, I connected to that sense of adventure and of possibility. But somehow I regressed in that story as I grew up. As a teenager, I was more like Milo at the beginning of the book. I was bored, checked out, apathetic. Nothing seemed worth the trouble. There are many ways of being a Milo. Sometimes we're bored or apathetic. Other ways to do it, though, are to actually be frenzied, to connect to that hurried pace that he seems to have, to fill our lives with busyness, just treading water, trying to get through each day, saying, I'll be okay once I get to that day down the line, if I can just make it through today. And we say that day after day after day. One of the goals we have here as a community is to be fully alive. It's actually in our name and in our DNA. The word zao is a Greek word from the New Testament, from the Bible, and it means to be among the living. And that's no coincidence. Our Bible tells us that the God of Jesus Christ is the God of the living, not of the dead. And our joy as followers, as seekers, as believers or doubters or questioners is to connect to that God of life, to be fully present to the life that we've been given. But it's hard. It's hard and it's frustrating and so much of the world around us is set up to keep us from that, to hold it back, to hold it at bay because life is really complicated and messy and hard and sometimes painful. This passage today says that not only are we to show up for God, to show up for life, but to search for it, to grope for it even, this beautiful image of us striving, of us longing, of us putting our effort, our wholeness into reaching out to the God of life who gives us breath, who, who is embodied in this whole world. And yet, so many of us move through the day closed off, sort of emotionally bundled up, just trying to make it through. And I want you to know that if you feel like that's you in any little bit, you are not alone. And it is not a failure on your part. It is the pressures of the world and the pressures of being that cause us to retreat and pull inward. And also, we have a challenge before us to show up, to come out, to come out of hiding of our own selves and to be alive, to be with our God, to strive for, search for that life, that truth, that meaning, that connection, that delight in the world around us. Now, there are a lot of reasons to check out, and I'm just going to talk about three of them today. So one of the reasons that we check out is because we're too cool for school. I know that one is one that I'm guilty of and have been. Uh, another is that we are anxious about the future or that we're caught up in the past. So we're not present to what's going on because we're either too far this way or too far behind us. I'm guilty of that one too. The third one is that we're numbing our pain. And this one can be the most insidious, but it's also the most pervasive. A lot of us are experiencing some kind of pain in our lives, and so we numb it, and that prevents us from fully showing up. I'm guilty of that one too. So to begin with being too cool for school, this is something that I was really, really solid at as a teenager. Um, when I was in high school, I was just too cool to be there. Now, now full disclosure, I was not actually cool. Uh, but, but I had that kind of attitude of like, too cool to be here, what do you even want from me? I had these like, um, 
Did anybody grow up in the same era that I did where the, the, the sneakers to have were like the, the classic three-stripe Adidas? Yeah, okay, so I didn't have those, but I, I had knockoff ones from Payless that had two stripes. <laughs> and so I remember sitting in the back of my Spanish class in sophomore year um, and just like, I found a Sharpie. And so like in the middle of class, my teacher is trying to teach me and I just straight up like put my foot on my desk and I start drawing in my third stripe. <laughs> that was me in high school. I would openly read my own books and novels in class. And then when I was in study hall, where I could have been reading, I would sleep, right? And so, you know, I was, I was doing that. And I was a very rebellious kid, obviously. So I wanted my, my resistance, my too cool for school, I wanted that to be notable, right? I was communicating. But we don't all have to be <laughs> these jerk rebels in order to do that. I think this is something that a lot of us do. It's a way, actually, of establishing boundaries when we're feeling impressed upon. It's a way of having some sense of control when we feel like others are demanding things of us. But we get this internal, usually, sometimes external, but this internal just like, no. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. And whether that's like, you know, when you're at work and your boss wants something from you or a customer wants something from you, or in your, in your home life where your family, your friends, your relationships have some expectations of you. And maybe you'll throw a fit or whatever, but more likely you'll just be like, okay, no. <laughs> and that resistance, that, that sense of like acting out, like I said, it comes from this, this space of feeling out of control. The space of feeling like, like the only thing you can do to establish yourself there is this passive resistance no. Your no is the only boundary you have. And the reason that this contradicts with the whole premise of showing up is not because you should be saying yes to everyone. It's not because you should be complying with everything that everyone asks of you. That inner rebel is still a big part of who I am. I would never advise you to just simply say yes to authority. But showing up requires a sense of hope. And that internal no is not a no of hope. That's a no of last resort. That's a no of, if you want something of me, I'll just make less of me available. But it's really difficult to do that, to have that internal no driving you and be fully open and alive to the world around you. So, in order to show up, we need our attitude to the world to be one of hope. We need to find a way to say yes, even if that yes is, you know, a yes of resistance. If, if, if your internal no is at your work, find a way to unionize, right? If your internal no is with your family, find a way to be honest about what's going on with you. But having that sense of agency and really showing up for things is fundamentally different than that internal orientation of, nah. So that's the first trap that I know I get into, that I think a lot of us get into, is being too cool for school, that internal just like, no. And instead of establishing boundaries healthily and proactively and saying, this is what I need, this is who I am, this is how I'm showing up, we just close ourselves off and we kind of die a little when we do that. The second way that we fail to show up is when we get caught, stuck in the past, 
or when we ruminate about the past, or on the flip side of that, when we're spinning our wheels so much about the future that either way we miss the present and what's going on. So ruminating on the past, a lot of times this is sort of an idealization of the past, right? This is, it's often imagined or at least inflated. Maybe it's the one that got away. Maybe you're thinking of that perfect friend group that just got you in a way that nobody here gets you. That organization that you used to hang out with, that job, that choir, that church. But, but there is this sense of like, there was one time when things were okay. And we, we focus so much on that and that sense of loss that we're out of sync with the present. Other times it can be hurt that we're ruminating on. This one thing that was so bad, this pain that I carry, that I refuse to let go of, will just keep dragging me back and dragging me back and, and disallowing me from being fully alive, fully showing up for this present moment. I know the one that I struggle with more is actually that future sense, that anxious sense. We spin our wheels about the future trying to control what comes ahead and missing out on what's happening now, which we actually have a lot more agency and control over. Cameron and I, my, my spouse, he and I just moved to, uh, to a new apartment building and um, it's got a gorgeous lake view. And we knew that it would be a very temporary move, that this was like a really brief moment in our lives that we could live in this kind of place. And so, you know, we thought, okay, we'll be here for like a year if we're lucky. And we had lived there for a few weeks, and we were standing out on the balcony looking out at this gorgeous view, and I could sense in him this like, this like weird, anxious, sad mixture. And I was like, what's going on, man? This is a beautiful lake. And he goes, I want to live here. And I knew exactly what he meant, even though the words out of my mouth were like, we do live here. <laughs> but I knew what he meant. He wanted to live here in the future. He wanted to imagine his life there. He wanted us to be able to, to stay in that moment, to have that Lakeview forever. But that longing that was in both of us was like taking away taking away from our ability to be there. Because the true answer is we do live there. We live there right now. We live here in this moment. We are looking at this lake right now. And yet that longing, that, that sense of like, can't I just have this forever? Or can't I fix the future? Or what's going to come next was taking us both completely out of it. This is something that Jesus preached about actually kind of a lot. About this sense of being present right now and not worrying about the future. In the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer that we'll pray together at communion, one of the things that we are commanded to pray for is our daily bread. And that is really specific. That's saying, God, I pray that you, you give me what I need today. And that's really different from saying, God, I pray that you give me an ironclad path for the future. Right? Some of us have gotten ourselves into trouble praying for daily bread and realizing just what that meant in terms of taking risk and facing the unknown. I have a friend who has a chronic illness. <coughs> oh, that was the wrong way to do it. 
I have a friend who has a chronic illness, and we've been reading this book together, actually, this Brene Brown book um, that this sermon is, uh, this series, actually, is inspired by in part. Um, And I'll read a little section from it later. But we're reading this book, and we're talking about all of these things, these topics, showing up and um, letting go of our anxieties about the future and really understanding what we're facing here today. And her chronic illness is something that she deals with every day. And when she, when she gets new news, she doesn't, nobody knows actually what it is exactly. She has this undiagnosed chronic illness that affects her life day in, day out. And it's very difficult um, because she gets sort of new information or new symptoms and they devastate her. And when we started talking about it, she said, you know, it's really funny though because it devastates me thinking about what I might not be able to do later. And I'm like, well, how are you now? And she's like, that's the, that's the very thing. Right now, I'm actually feeling pretty good. And so we talked about that and what it means to let fear of the future or, or our intentions for the future, even if they're good, our ambitions for the future, rob us of the present. It's another way of not showing up. It's a way of saying, I'll show up later. I'll show up when. It's a very human thing to do, especially when we're operating out of a sense of fear. I said that Jesus preached about this a lot, and he does, um, but he wasn't the first to introduce that into our scriptures. Way back in the day, when the Israelites had come out of slavery in Egypt, they had escaped, and they were wandering in the desert. They were in the actual desert, and they, they were there for 40 years. So a whole generation lived in this kind of in-between space. Now God provided for them with something called manna. And manna came from heaven. And basically what happened was every day it would rain down essentially bread. It would rain down this daily bread, this food, this sustenance that said, I've got you. I've got you for today. And so the Israelites would eat. And then the story goes, they gathered up the manna because there was more than enough. But overnight, the manna turned sour and and was no longer edible. And this is how they lived for 40 years. God saying, I will provide for you. And every day, them having to wake up and trust that. And that became really, really difficult. And at one point, the Israelites said, why don't we just go back to Egypt? At least then we know what's happening tomorrow. And Moses, who was leading them, said, are you serious? You would literally rather go back into slavery, into captivity, than trust your God and wake up every morning and take what comes. And we may think that they sound crazy or they sound, you know, like irrational in that moment, but that is how we live every day, is it not? that we would rather be captive to anything that would give us some sense of the future than to be fully satisfied in what we have now. And that is precisely what happens when we give ourselves to the future, when we give ourselves to our plans in a way that takes us out of the present. We are held captive. We sign contracts, either literal or figurative, and we commit ourselves to something that is not now and it takes us out. This too is about control. But does it really make us feel free? Who has the control 
when we give all of our attentiveness to our anxieties to the future. The third way that, that we fail to show up that takes us out of showing up is for me the most insidious and I think is actually probably the most pervasive. And it's numbing. We numb out to avoid pain. This can take a thousand different forms. For some, some of you know that for me, um, when I was an adolescent, this took the form of substance abuse. That I was numbing out, I was in a ton of pain, and I just wanted it to be gone. But, and this is where the Brene Brown comes in, we numb out in every way we can, and everything around us offers us new and different opportunities to numb out from the pain in our lives. Some of those are great things, but they accumulate, they stack up, right? So whether it's TV or shopping or Facebook, there are these, these paths that we take that just kind of take the edge off a little bit of being fully alive. We can put ourselves elsewhere for just a moment, and we get that sense of relief. Whew, I don't have to show up right now. I can just check out. And we do that over and over and over again. Brene Brown writes, that, uh, writes three, three facts, three conclusions that she actually drew from her own research on this. She says, most of us engage in behaviors, consciously or not, that help us to numb and take the edge off of vulnerability, pain, and discomfort. And there's no judgment in that part of her research. She says that most people just do this. It's just what human beings do. The second really hit me hard. Number two, she says addiction can be described as chronically and compulsively numbing and taking the edge off of feelings. Addiction can be described as chronically and compulsively numbing and taking the edge off of feelings. I was taken aback when I read that second point because it described my own addiction experience to a T. I remember when I was using, it felt like I was just taking the volume of my whole life and turning it down. And, and again, like in a way that felt like such relief. But I did it over and over and over again until I couldn't tolerate any volume at all. And I was just dazed going through life. Part of my journey back to health and getting clean was the realization that turning that volume down wasn't just taking the edge off of the pain, it was actually turning down the volume on my entire existence. That I was turning down the volume on life. That I was, I was putting something between myself and all my experiences that I might as well have been sleepwalking. And at some point that became unacceptable to me because I knew that I was gonna die. For me, that meant I literally could die. There were a lot of friends that I had that had already overdosed. But I knew that even if I didn't die in that way, that I was already dying every day. And this brings me to Brene Brown's third point. She says, we cannot selectively numb emotions. When we numb the painful emotions, we also numb the positive emotions. During that time in my life, I became captive to heroin. And it wasn't because heroin was so great. It was actually because my life was so hard. 
And heroin could have been any number of things for me in that time. But I became captive, I became a slave to that sense of numbing. I said I would rather know what's coming and be able to numb through it than face the onslaught of emotions, than actually show up in the way that is hard and painful. For me, coming back from that had to be an explicitly spiritual journey. I, when I got clean, I, I, I went to rehab and I did all those important things and I got professional help because I knew that those were critical. And also for me, that whole process was a process of me saying yes to God and saying the only way that I can actually fully show up is with the help of the, of the divine because Lord knows I can't do it on my own. I needed help. And I needed the God of life to show me that life was worth living because I was fighting the very life inside of me, the very breath that God gave me. Our passage reminds us of the creation story where God breathes life into us, that it is the breath of God that makes us alive, that it is divine, holy magic that animates us in the first place. And I realized that by turning the volume down, I was fighting against that. I was pushing the very divine out of my body and out of my being and saying, no, I can't, it's too hard. And I needed to find a way to show up. But I couldn't do that, not on my own. And so I had to ask that God of life to show me how. That journey for me was a long and painful one, and it involved a lot of feelings, which are hard and beautiful and confusing. And trying to stop numbing meant trying to start feeling. And let me tell you, I went back and forth a lot about whether that was worth it. But saying yes to life means saying yes to all of it. Showing up means showing up for all of it. The beauty, the pain, the loss, the delight, the joy, the satisfaction. They all come together. And so being alive fully means finding a way to show up for all of it. None of us can do this on our own. And frankly, in my experience, none of us can do this all the time. It is, it's exhausting. But the goal for me now has, to be, has become to be more, to be more alive, to show up more, to see when I'm checked out and show up just a little bit, just for a moment. I have been clean for a dozen years now, but I haven't stopped struggling with numbing and checking out. I noticed it in my process about eight years after I got clean. Um, I, was in, I was in Chicago, where I lived, and the pace of life was really fast, and I loved that and appreciated that. I had a really demanding job. I was listening to all these amazing podcasts, which I really liked, and I was reading all these great books. I realized that all of this input, all of this stuff that I loved, that, I, that was so good on paper, oh, I had read all these books, I had listened to all these podcasts, I had gotten all this work done, all of that was actually this new strategy that I had devised to numb out. I was always checked out, the pace of life moving as it was, I, everywhere I went, I couldn't walk to the train without my headphones on and a podcast going. 
I wouldn't even always really be listening to it, but it was enough to get me out of that moment. So there I was, back in a new version of Milo, hurrying along, always anxious to get to my next spot, but never satisfied to actually show up for it. So that year, during the season of Lent, um, which happens in the spring, I made a commitment. Uh, Lent is a season that people often fast, which means they, they make intentional space of, of removing certain things from their life. I fasted from checking out. And it was amazing to me how many parallels there were to my fast to when I was getting clean from drugs. And it was hard and confusing that I had to find a way to just sit and be again. And, and when you just sit and be, when you don't have all of this input all the time, when you don't have something to numb you out, when you're not scrolling obsessively through social media, when you're just there, when you show up, a lot happens. A lot happens. Some of it's really sad. Some of it feels really lonely. But it also starts to awaken you. I started to feel more again. I started to smile more. And I started to notice these things, these things around me, the birds, the thing, the, the street art on the sidewalk that I had walked past every day. Because I, didn't, I wasn't inundated with distractions. I could actually show up for and appreciate and wonder, who put this here? What is that bird like? That sense of showing up, of creating space to feel, is really, really terrifying. But it's also really freeing. Because I will tell you, back in the day when I was doing the podcast and the whatever and the don't stop, don't stop, I would be in my car listening to, to something on the radio, whatever. And then I would literally, this will tell you like how deep I was in this, I would literally have to put on my headphones and put on some podcast or something before I would gather my things out of my car and walk the three flights up into my apartment because I could not stand the few minutes of just being and being. And that was another way that I felt captive that I couldn't just be anymore. I had lost that ability. So again, I needed help. For me, that Lent, fasting from checking out wasn't enough. I couldn't just do that. I also needed reinforcements. And so I made some more intentional choices. I started talking to some friends to have some accountability and saying, hey, I've been checking out a lot. Will you be with me to just bring me back? to help me to show up. So a couple of my friends and I started meditating together. I tried to be in my body more, which at first meant that I just thought about my muscles as I walked up the stairs. But then, eventually, meant that I, I got more physically active because I wanted to be back in my body because I was finally paying attention to it. My relationship with God shifted because God stopped being something on my to-do list of, oh, I need to know more about God, or, oh, I got to get to church, or, oh, I have to, you know, do these things. God started being a person in my life, a relationship in my life that I could just show up to. 
and listen to and hear and spend time with. Because as our passage today reminds us, our God is not a God that is captive to any of those things. Our God is a God who is infused in every piece of creation, not a God of temples or shrines, not a God who is uh, in need of the work of human hands, but a God who shows up the end. Our God is a God who is. Being is the function of our God. Showing up, being present, being alive, that is the character of our God, and we are made in God's image. It is in our God that we live and move and have our being, that we find that freedom to be without being held captive, without fearing the feelings, the stress, the anxiety, but just experiencing them. And therefore then, experiencing joy and connection and relationship, the depth of which we cannot achieve if we are checked out, numbed out, too cool for school, internally just saying no, and and going less and less and smaller and smaller. Our God is expansive. Our God breaks in. And so do we when we have the courage to show up. So I want to offer you a challenge and a promise. The challenge, you will not be shocked to hear, is to find ways, new ways, to show up. It doesn't have to be always. You don't have to feel bad when you realize you're checked out. But just for a moment, be alive and see what happens. And the promise that accompanies that is that the God who breathed life into you in the beginning, the God of life, will show up, does show up, to be with you, shows up for you when you can't. And it is in this God of life that we find our capacity, find our being, that we live and move and breathe. So whichever way you tend towards, If you've got that internal no, open it up. If you find yourself stuck in the past or ruminating on the future, check into what's happening right now. Just like right now. Not like right now this week, right now this moment. And if you have been numbing out, know that you can actually withstand the pain. I know it might feel like you can't. And maybe you can't forever, but you can for a moment. For a moment, show up. For a moment, feel and be present and know that you are not alone. There are some specific practices that we can build into our lives. Just as we were talking about authenticity um, some weeks ago and how that's not something you have or don't have, that's a practice you cultivate. Showing up, being around for this life you have, that's a practice and you can cultivate it. And we can do that together. I would say that in my experience, the best way to begin is to just start noticing things. That's all. No judgment, no obligation, but just notice. Maybe you notice that you're a little sad and you can just notice that. Maybe you notice that the leaves have changed 
and that for some reason they're red on top and then they go to orange and yellow and there's still some green at the very bottom and you just notice. Maybe you notice that there is a person near you who you don't know much about and you just notice with delight and wonder and curiosity. When I was going through some of my various phases of trying to check back in, trying to show up, I was given practices of, of gratitude, name things that you're grateful for. If you can do that, that's amazing. I was not at a place to be grateful, so all I could do was notice. I noticed the clouds. I noticed the people walking down the street. I noticed that I am not here alone and that God is here with me. Even, even in those moments that I can't feel gratitude for that just yet. So I want to invite you actually to do that right now. We're going to take a little bit. It's not going to be long. I'm literally going to time it and we're going to go for 20 seconds because I know you can do it. But for 20 seconds, we are just going to notice. Now, if you want some structure to this, one of the ways of noticing um, is to bring yourself back in your body. So um, a great way to do this is um, joint compressions. So you just grab, you know, you can grab your wrists and kind of press on them. You can grab your knees and press on them. But any joints you have, just press on them a little bit. It's one of the ways to just kind of get settled back in your body, to notice your body. Another thing that I find really helpful, especially when I'm really checked out, um, is a practice 54321. And that is, it's a sensory practice where you just take note of five things that you see, four things that you hear, three things that you touch, two things that you smell, and one thing that you taste. I may have even switched up the order on that. It doesn't really matter. But five, four, three, two, one, you're going through your five senses and you're just noticing what's happening. So we're going to do this together. <coughs> I'm going to open us up with a moment of prayer. I'm going to speak some prayer. Then I'm going to leave 20 seconds. And I want you to just show up just for those 20 seconds in whatever way that means for you. And then I'll close us in prayer. Good and holy God, God of the living, God who shows up for us relentlessly, even when we are too exhausted or too hurt. God, we ask that through your power, we may show up today and every day. <coughs> God, I pray that you would give us your life, that you would bring us back to the present and inspire us right now for 20 seconds. God, you are good. Your mercy endures. 
help us to show up, show up for your love, and trust in your provision. Amen.